Section 9 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 5, Part 1. Meshed the Holy. Warning spits of snow accompany my early morning departure from the wayside caravanserai, and it quickly develops into a blinding snowstorm that effectually obscures the country around, although melting as it touches the ground. A mile from the caravanserai, the trails fork, and, taking the wrong one, I wander some miles up the mountains ere discovering my mistake. Retracing my way, the right road is finally taken. But the gale increases in violence. The cold is numbing to unprotected hands and ears, and the wind and driving snow difficult to face. At one point, the trail leads through a morass, in which are two dead horses, swamped in attempting to cross, and nearby lies an abandoned camel, lying in the mud and wearily munching at a heap of kali, cut barley straw, placed before him by his owners, before leaving him to his kismet, perchance with a forlorn hope that he might pull through and finally regain his feet. I have a narrow escape from swamping in the treacherous morass myself, sinking knee-deep in the slimy, oozing mud-mass, pulling off my jivez and having no end of trouble in recovering them. Shurab is reached about noon, where the customary crowd and customary rude accommodations await me. Quite an unaccustomed luxury, however, is obtained at Shurab, a substance made from grapes called shira, which resembles thin molasses. A communal dish, which I see the chaparji and his slyagurds prepare for themselves and eat this evening, consists of one pint of shira, half that quantity of grease, a handful of chopped onions, and a quart of water. This awful mixture is stewed for a few minutes and then poured over a bowl of broken bread. They then gather around and eat it with their hands. That they also eat it with great gusto goes without saying. Opium smoking appears to be indulged in to a great extent here. Two out of the three chapar men, putting in a good portion of their time hitting the seductive pipe and tinkering with their opium-smoking apparatus. They only have one outfit between them. Both of them are half-blind with ophthalmia, and the bane of their wretched existence seems to be a Russian candle-lamp with a broken globe that persists in falling apart whenever they attempt to use it, which, by the by, is well-nigh all the time, in manipulating the opium needle and pipe. Observing them from my rude shakedown, after supper, bending persistently over this broken, or ever-breaking lamp, their sore eyes and shrunken features, the suzzle-suzzle of the opium as they suck it into the primer and inhale the fumes, the indescribable odor of the drug pervading the room, all this would seem to be a picture of an ideal Chinese opium den rather than of a chapar khana in Persia. A broken bridge and miles of deep mud not far ahead has been the burthen of information gathered from the villagers during the afternoon.
and the chapar g urges upon me the necessity of employing men and horses to carry me and the bicycle across these obstructions into nishapur preferring to take my chances of getting through however i pay no heed to these warnings well aware that the chaparji's interest in the matter begins and ends in the fact that he has horses to hire himself in imitation of my example yesterday i wander off the proper road again this morning taking a road that leads to an abandoned ford instead of to the bridge a mistake that is probably a very good one to have made when viewed from the standpoint of mud as my road is at least the shorter one of the two a wild-looking busby-decked crowd of khorasani goatherds from a neighboring village follow behind me across the level mud-flats leading to the stream vociferously clamoring for me to ride they shout persistently hoi sowar shuk tomasha tomasha even when they see the difficult task I have of it getting the bicycle through the mud. I have singled out a big, sturdy goat herder to assist me across the streams, of which I learn there are two, a mile or thereabout apart, and his compatriots are accompanying us to see us cross, as well as being impelled by prying curiosity to see how many kirans he gets for his trouble. The first stream is found to be armpit deep, with a fairly strong current. My sturdy Khorasani crosses over first to try the bottom, feeling his way with a long-handled spade. He then returns and carries the bicycle across on his head, afterward carrying me across astride his shoulders, landing me safely with nothing worse than wet feet. A mile of awful saline mud and stream number two is reached and crossed in a similar manner although here I unfortunately cross part way over fairly sitting on the water. The water and the weather are both uncomfortably chilly, and my assistant emerges from the second stream with chattering teeth and goose-pimply flesh. A liberal and well-deserved present makes him forget personal discomforts, and, fervently kissing my hand and pressing my palm to his forehead, he tells me there is no more water ahead, and, recrossing the stream, he wends his way homeward again. Fortunately, the road improves rapidly, developing beyond the Nishapur Valley into smooth, upland camel trails that afford quite excellent wheeling. The Nishapur Valley impresses me as about the finest area of cultivation seen in Persia, except, perhaps, the Tabriz Plain, and toward Gadamga, the country gets positively beautiful, at least beautiful in comparison crystal streamlets come purling and gurgling across the road over pebbly beds and looking northward for their source one finds that the usually gray and uninteresting foothills have changed into bright green slopes on whose cheerful brows are seen an occasional pine or cedar overtopping these green grassy slopes are dark rugged rocks and higher still the grim white region of winter somewhere behind these emerald foothills near gadamga are the famous turquoise mines alluded to in the veiled prophet of khorasan the mines are worked at the present time but only in a desultory and unenterprising manner favored with good roads i succeed in reaching gadamga before dark where besides a comfortable and commodious caravanserai and the pleasure of seeing around a number of fine spreading cedars one can obtain the rare luxury of pine wood to build a fire 
Immediately upon my arrival, a knowing and respectable-looking old pilgrim, who calls himself a haji and a dervish from Mazanderan, rescues me from the annoying importunities of the people and invites me to share the accommodation of his menzel. Augmenting his scanty stock of firewood and obtaining eggs and bread, quite a comfortable evening is spent in reclining beside the blazing pinewood fire, which is itself no trifling luxury in a country of scanty, camel-thorn, and tezek. Whenever the prying curiosity of the occupants of neighboring menzils impels them to visit our quarters, to stand and stare at me, my friend, the haji, waxes indignant and waving a stick of firewood threateningly toward them he pours forth a torrent of withering and sarcastic remarks once in his wrath he hops lightly off the menzil floor seizes an individual twice his own size by the cammerbund jerks him violently forward bids him stare until he gets ashamed of staring and then turning him round shoves him unceremoniously away again pursuing him as he retreats to his own quarters, and Benzville shouts of, Yah! To a few eminently respectable travelers, however, the haji graciously accords the coveted privilege of squatting around our fire and chatting. Being himself a person who dearly loves the music of his own voice, he holds forth at great length on the subject of himself in particular, dervishes in general, and the province of Mazanderai, like a good many other people conscious of their own garrulousness the haji evidently suspects his auditors of receiving his statements with a good deal of allowance consequently when impressing upon them the circumstance of his hailing from mazanderan a fact that he seems to think creditable in some way to himself he produces from the depths of his capacious saddlebags several dried fish of a variety for which that province is celebrated and exhibits them in confirmation of his statements it is genuine wintry weather and with no bedclothes save a narrow horse blanket borrowed from my impromptu friend i spent a cold uncomfortable night for a caravanserai menzel is but a mere place of shelter after all the haji rises early and replenishes the fire and with his little brass teapot we make and drink a glass of tea together before starting out at daybreak the haji goes outside to take a preliminary peep at the weather and returns with the unwelcome intelligence that it is snowing better snow than rain i conclude as i prepare to start little thinking that i am entering upon the toughest day's experience of the whole journey through persia before covering three miles, the snowstorm develops into a regular blizzard, a furious driving storm that would do credit to Dakota. Without gloves, and in summer clothes throughout, I quickly find myself in a most unenviable plight. It is no common snowstorm. Every few minutes, a halt has to be made, hands buffeted, and ears rubbed to prevent these members from freezing yet footgear has to be removed and streams waded in the bitter cold the road leads up into a region of broken hills and the climax of my discomfort is reached when the blizzard is raging with ever-increasing fury and the cold has already slightly nipped one finger while attempting to cross a deep narrow stream without disrobing it is my unhappy fate to drop the bicycle into the water and furthermore to front the necessity of instantly plunging in armpit deep to its rescue.
When I emerge upon the opposite bank, my situation is really quite critical. In a few moments, my garments are frozen stiff. Everything I have with me is wet. My leathern case, containing the small stock of medicines, matches, writing material, and other small but necessary articles, is full of water, and with hands benumbed I am unable to unstrap it. My only salvation consists in vigorous exercise, and, conscious of this, I splurge ahead through the blinding storm and the fast-deepening snow, fording several other streams, often emerging dripping from the icy water, to struggle through waist-deep snowdrifts that are rapidly accumulating under the influence of the driving blast and fast-falling snow. Uncertain of the distance to the next caravanserai, I push determinedly forward in this condition for several hours, making but slow progress. Everything must come to an end, however, and twenty miles from Gadamga, the welcome outlines of a roadside caravanserai become visible through the thickly falling snowflakes, and the din of many jangling camel bells proclaims it already occupied. The caravanserai is found so densely crowded with people, horses, camels, and their loads that it is impossible to at first carry the bicycle inside. Confusion, and more than confusion, reigns supreme. Every menzel is occupied, and the whole interior space is a confused mass of charvadars, stoutly vociferating at one another and at the pack animals lying down, wandering about, or being unloaded. Leaving the bicycle outside in the snow, I clamber over the humpy forms of kneeling camels, through an intricate maze of mules, and over barricades of miscellaneous merchandise, and, making a virtue of the dire necessity, invade the menzel of a well-to-do-looking traveller. Here, waiving all considerations of whether my presence is acceptable, or the reverse, I take a seat beside their fire, and forthwith proceed to shed my saturated footgear. Under ordinary conditions, this proceeding would be nothing less than a piece of sublime assurance, but necessity knows no law, and my case is really very urgent. When I explain to the occupants of the menzel that this Nolan's Volans invasion of their premises is but a temporary arrangement, in the flowery language of polite Persian, they tell me that the menzel, the fire, and everything they have is mine. After the inevitable examination of my map, compass, and sundry effects, I begin to fancy my presence something of an embarrassment, and consequently am not a little gratified at hearing the authoritative voice of my friend the Haji shouting loudly at the Shavadars, telling him that he is a Haji and a Mazandaran dervish, for whom they cannot clear the way too quickly. Looking round, I see him appear at the caravanserai entrance with a party of pilgrims, in whose company he has journeyed from Gadamga. The combined excellences that enter into the composition of a person who is both a dervish and an ex-Mecca pilgrim are of great benefit in securing the respect and consideration of the common herd in Persia. And as, in addition to this, our haji commands attention by the peculiar tone and volume of his voice when delivering his command, his tall, angular steed is quickly tied up in a snug and sheltered corner, and his saddlebags deposited on the floor of a fellow pilgrim's menzel.
Hearing of my arrival, he straightway seeks me out and invites me to share the accommodation of his new-found quarters, not forgetting to explain to the people he finds me with, however, that he is a haji, a dervish, and that he hails from Mazanderan. I shouldn't be much surprised to see him back up the latter assertion by producing a dried fish from the ample folds of his cameraband, but these finny witnesses are reserved to perform their role later in the evening. As the gloom of night envelops the interior of the caravanserai, and the scores of little brushwood fires smoke and glimmer and twinkle fitfully, the scene appeals to an observant Occidental as being decidedly unique, and totally unlike anything to be seen outside of Persia. Around each little fire, from four to a dozen figures are squatting, each group forming a most social gathering. Some are singing some chatting pleasantly, some quarreling and arguing violently, some are shouting lustily at each other across the whole width of the serai, all are taking turns at smoking the kalian, or sipping tea, or preparing supper. Occasionally a fiery wheel glows through the darkness, from which fly myriads of sparks, looking very pretty as it describes rapid circles. This is a little wire cage, full of live charcoal, that is being swung round and round like a sling to enliven the coals for priming the kalyan. In the middle space, crowded with animals and their loads, the horses, being all stallions, are constantly squealing and fighting. Camels are grunting dolefully, donkeys are braying and bells clanging, and grooms and sharvadars are shouting and quarrelling. Taken all in all, the interior of a crowded caravanserai is a decidedly animated place. The snowstorm subsides during the night, and a clear, frosty morning breaks upon a wintry landscape in which nothing is visible but snow. The haji announces his intention of Inshallah Meshed Amrus. Please God, we will reach Meshed today, as he covers up the obtrusive tail of a fish emerging from one of the saddlebags and prepares to mount. I give him my packages to carry, by way of lightening my burden as much as possible, for the struggle through the snow, and promise him a bottle of arak upon reaching Meshed, as a reward for thus assisting me through. Arak is forbidden fruit to a haji above all things else, so that nothing I could promise him would likely prove more tempting or acceptable, or be better appreciated. It proves slavish work trundling, tugging, and carrying the bicycle through the deep snow along a half-broken trail made by a few horses, and through deep drifts, but the cold, bracing air is favorable for exertion, and by ten o'clock we reach Sharifabad, where a halt is made to prepare a cup of tea and to give the haji's horse a feed of barley. At Sharifabad, we are warned that on the hills between here and Meshed, snow will be found two feet deep. Streams belly deep to the haji's horse will have to be forded, and, toward Meshed, mud knee-deep. Conscious that the mud will be knee-deep, the whole distance, after the disappearance of the snow, this makes us only the more eager to push on while we may. The sun has, by this time, become uncomfortably warm and the narrow trail is fast becoming a miry pathway of mud and slush under the trampling feet of the animals gone ahead, and of villagers' donkeys returning from the city. Mile after mile is devoted to the unhappy task of trundling the bicycle ahead, 
rear wheel aloft, through mud and slush varying from ankle-deep to worse, occasionally varying the program by fording a stream. Late in the afternoon we arrive at the summit of the hills overlooking the Meshed Plain, and the haji points out enthusiastically the golden dome of imam biza's sanctuary the yellow glistening goal whose famed sanctity has attracted hosts of pilgrims from all quarters of central asia for ages past the hills hereabout are of a rocky character and pious pilgrims have gathered into little mounds every loose piece of rock it being customary for each pilgrim to find a stone and add it to one of these piles upon first viewing the bright golden dome of the holy city from this commanding spot below the rocky paths of this declivity the snow disappears in favor of slippery mud and the haji's wearied charges slips and slides about to the imminent danger of its rider's neck and all the time the slim Turkoman steed trembles visibly in terror of the old Mazandaran dervish's whip and his awful threats. Two miles down the bed of the stream, crossing and recrossing it a dozen times, often thigh-deep, and we emerge upon the gently sloping area of the Meshed plain, with the yellow beacon light of Meshed glowing in the mellow light of the evening sun six miles away the late storm has been chiefly rain in the lower altitude of the plain and the day's sunshine has partially dried the surface but leaving it slippery and treacherous here and there after leaving the bed of the stream the haji becomes anxious about reaching meshed before dark and advises me to mount and put on the speed inshallah meshed yeksat he says and so i mount and bid him follow along behind by vocal suasion and a liberal application of his cruel, triple-thonged rawhide whip, he urges his well-nigh staggering animal into a canter, lifting his forefeet clear of the ground seemingly by the bridle at every jump. Suspicious as to his lank and angular steed's sure-footedness under the strain, I take the very laudable precaution of keeping as far from him as possible, not caring to get mixed up in a catastrophe that seems inevitable every time the horse, goaded by the stinging stimulus of the whip and the threats, makes another jump. Not more than a mile of the six is covered when I have ample reason for congratulating myself on taking this precaution for the horse stumbles and being too far gone to recover himself comes down on his nose and the haji and mazandaran dervish is cutting a most ridiculous figure in the mud his tall lambskin hat flies off and lands in a pool of muddy water some distance ahead the ponderous saddle-bags which are merely laid on the saddle shoot forward athwart the horse's neck the horse's nose roots quite a furrow in the mud and the horse's owner picks himself up and takes a woeful survey of his own figure it is needless to say that the survey includes a good deal more real estate than the haji cares to claim even though it be the semi-sacred soil of the meshed plain the poor horse is altogether too tired to attempt to recover his legs of his own inclination but regarding him as the author of his ignominious misadventure the haji surveys him with a wrathful eye for a moment mutters a few awful imprecations imported no doubt from mazandaran and then attacks him savagely about the head with a whip 
In his wrath and determination to make a lasting impression of each blow given, the haji emphasizes each visitation with a very audible grunt, and to speak correctly, so does the horse. It goes without saying, however, that master and animal grunt from widely different motives. Although so far as the mere audible performance is concerned, one grunt might almost be an echo of the other. At length, by adopting a more circumspect pace, we reach the gate of the holy city about sunset without further mishap. The haji leads the way through a bewildering labyrinth of narrow streets that consists of an open sewage ditch in the center, at present full of filth, and a narrow footway of rough, broken, and mud-bespattered cobblestones on either side. Of course, we are followed through these fearful thoroughfares by a surging and vociferous crowd of people such as a central Asian city alone can produce. But I can this time happily afford to smile at these usually irritating accompaniments to my arrival in a populous city, for ten minutes after entering the gate finds me shaking hands with Mr. Gray, the genial telegraphist of the Afghan Boundary Commission. With a well-guarded gate between our cozy quarters and the shouting mob outside, the evening is spent very pleasantly and quietly, in striking comparison with what it would have been had no one been here to afford me a place of refuge. Meshed is the jumping-off place of telegraphy. The electric spider spins his galvanized web no farther in this direction, and the dirge-like music of civilizations, aeolian harp, that, like the roll of England's drum, is heard around the world, approaches the barbarous territory of Afghanistan from two directions, but recoils from entering that fanatical and conservative domain. It approaches from Persia on the one side, and from India on the other, but as yet it only approaches. The drum has already been there. It is only a question of time when the Aeolian harp will follow. It is with a lively recollection of Khorasani March weather and the experience of the last few days that, after a warm bath, I array myself in a suit of Mr. Gray's clothing, elevate my slippered feet, Yengi Doña fashion, on a pile of Turcoman carpets, and, abetted by the cheering presence of a bottle of Shiraz wine, exchange my recent experiences on the road for telegraphic scraps of the latest news. How utterly unsatisfactory and altogether wretched seems even the gilded palace of a Persian provincial governor, the meaningless compliments, the salaaming lackeys, an empty show of courtesy when compared with the cozy quarters, the hearty welcome, the honest ring of an Englishman's voice, and the geniusness of everything. End of section nine. Recording by William Tomko.